Welcome to the Untold Civil War podcast, where we cover everything about the Civil War that has been unjustly left out of your high school and college textbooks. On this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing the badge maker. We covered everything there is to know about Civil War core badges and ID discs, the predecessors to the patches and identification tags the military uses today. The audio was a little rough, no fault on either party. Regardless, I'm sure you'll find the content both rich and insightful. Enjoy. In today's army, soldiers of a particular unit can be identified by the patch they wear on their shoulder. Uh, some patches have become iconic due to the exploits of the men and women who wore them. Uh, one patch, a simple red numeral one on a green shield, was made famous by the men of the 1st Infantry Division who wore it during their assault on Omaha Beach in World War II. Another patch, a horse head on a gold Norman shield, was immortalized during the Vietnam War at the Idrang Valley. Well, what people may not know is that this tradition of patches, badges, and unit identifiers dates back to the Civil War. I'm here with Joseph Valicenti, the badge maker. If you're in the reenacting community, you have probably already purchased some of his wares. And if you haven't, you've definitely seen or heard of his work. He produces highly detailed reproductions of core badges, Civil War ID tags, GAR badges, and much more. He is definitely the person to talk to if you want to learn everything there is to know about Civil War badges. Uh, thank you for coming to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. So uh, I guess we'll just start this off with, uh, so what exactly inspired the Union Army to adopt uh, the use of core badges? So there's a couple of stories that go back to uh, how they originated. Um, the first is probably more well-known, though it's kind of a more of a legend, really. Uh, you have General Philip Kearney, who is a commander in the Army of the Potomac, uh, really through the early years of the war. And the story goes that uh, one day he found a group of officers shirking their duties, and he berated them verbally, to which they kindly replied, well, sir, we're not under your command. And he kind of had an inclination, like, oh, well, how do I tell who is under my command? Because this, of course, is the time when uh, the Army was really adopting uh, standardized uniforms so that everyone looked the same. Because after the fiasco of First Manassas, where everybody dressed up in various different things and couldn't tell friend from foe and was real, you know, difficult to tell, you know, who you should be fighting. Uh, they just determined, well, why don't we dress the same? So that tended to work. But of course, then General Carney found this idea of, well, how do I tell who's under my command specifically? So he deemed it necessary for all his men to wear a very noticeable insignia on their uniform. Now, specifically as officers. And that turned out to be this red lozenge shape is actually the period term for it. But it kind of looks like a rhombus or a square or diamond. Uh, it tends to be a diamond in retrospect from a lot of the examples that survived from the war and post-war years. But um, he made sure that all his officers wore one after that day. And uh, unfortunately, after the Battle of Chantilly, when he was killed, uh, most of his men decided to continue wearing it, despite the fact that he was no longer with them. And the pride that ensued really spread from the officers down to the enlisted men. So then all of the men of his division, which ended up being the first division of the third corps, adopted that insignia. And from there, it kind of spread to a desire of other corps to wear something, but you don't see it really come about until uh, officially regulated by the army. Now, that story goes by uh, a few famous names from the war. That's General Dan Butterfield and General Joseph Hooker. So uh, General Hooker, of course, has command of the army following the defeat at uh, Fredericksburg. And he is kind of looked at as not too great a general, but he should be credited with uh, a couple of things. One is that he kind of establishes a large scale reorganization of the army to the point of um, systems of communication and reconnaissance and supply uh, because uh, he saw it was necessary. But as part of this, he adopts the system of insignia to designate the corps and divisions. So he leaves it to his staff officer, Dan Butterfield, to develop and execute it. So if you look at um, 
I believe it's in the Library of Congress, though uh, Don Troiani makes a, a great example of it or a showing of it in a book he wrote uh, not too long ago that's now published uh, called Civil War Soldiers, which has great uh, visual pieces in it. Uh, you actually see the written order that was developed by General Butterfield and sent to uh, Washington to be you know, made official. So he cuts out small pieces of paper and puts them in rows of the colors for the divisions of each corps. So in the Army of the Potomac, you have at the time uh, seven corps and each one about three divisions. So he designates very geometric shapes um, and uh, determines a division, red, white, blue, first, second, third. So it's very simple, very um, easy to implement, and it gets approved. Now they did find that um, soldiers were reluctant to wear these badges at first, and they had to use discipline to get them to wear them. But um, long story short, by the time you, the army gets to Gettysburg, and after it fights the Battle of Gettysburg, that's really where you start seeing more of a sense of pride in wearing them. But those are the two origin stories, really. They all start with the Army of the Potomac. And then later it does spread to the other armies and departments, or most of them, rather, throughout the war, in the Western Theater and all around the South. Right. And I, I was reading that, too. I thought it was kind of interesting. You know, later on, every monument, you see these badges. And, you know, a lot of the veterans are very proud of them. But it did take a lot to get these guys to actually start wearing them. And, it, you know, tying back to that story you were telling, I can see why people might have been reluctant to wear them because it was sort of originally like a tool used to hold people accountable when they were, you know, messing around or not doing their duties. In so, a way, yeah, that's that's a good point to it. That really was the initial start of it by General Carney, when you think about it. Do you do you think well? Do you think Carney ever thought that uh, it would become this big into something that was such a you know pride for the unit? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, you have to kind of in that type of question, you got to look at the character of General Carney. Um, I mean, he was right. really a charismatic and very um, colorful character for the time i mean he i mean if you find he's one of those guys who i guess you could say really was a po perfect for the time that he lived in um, right he, he's, he fought all over the globe he was a real uh real soldier very, very much and he um he, he he probably just thought practically and maybe didn't think that it would spread to be such a emblem of pride for soldiers really everywhere in the war but you know, who else, who better really to inst to start something to be the, you know, catalyst for that. So maybe because, right. you know, it's, it's possible that being, even if he survived, maybe it would have still been implemented because it was a good idea. Leading right into the next question. I mean, the badges were such a symbol of pride. Uh, I think some of these badges actually were designed to represent certain corps uh, service, right? Uh, yeah, there's a couple that um, specifically were designed for experiences that um, those particular corps had in the war. Um, so specifically, you would see, uh, let me think, well, I guess there's, there's really two that stand out. So that would be the 15th Corps. Uh, their badge was a another rhombus shape, but with a cartridge box in the center, um, at least on their flags. And sometimes on their badges, usually the metal badges that they were, if they had them, uh, would say 40 rounds across the cartridge box. Um, and then the other would be the 14th Corps, uh, which was an acorn. Uh, I'd say the 14th Corps is probably a more interesting story as to why they developed that as their badge. And 15th Corps, again, is kind of like, uh, you could say it started with with an army rumor type thing. But mm -hmm. it's more... Uh, if you're not familiar, but the uh, so the 15th Corps, they pretty much uh, after 1863, you see what's called a consolidation of the armies because there's lots of battles throughout 1863 um, that really are costly for um, the numbers of the uh, you know federal troops. So they consolidate, they move certain corps into other corps to make up numbers, they develop new corps and. In some cases, they move them around, so uh, different theaters. So that would example would be for the 11th and 12th Corps of the Army of the Potomac. They were moved out to the Western Theater. 
And what they did was they consolidated them into one court and then put them into another. So they formed the 20th Corps now in the Western Theater. But to designate itself, they kept the symbol of the five-pointed star that the 12th Corps originally had. So they go out west where they don't have Corps badges yet, and some men notice this. The rumor is, or the story goes, that some men noticed uh, these guys wearing stars. And somebody joked, probably an enlisted man joked, like, what are you guys, old generals? Because that's the only people who wore stars. Right. And then they said, oh, these are our... These are our core badges. And that's when the soldier slaps his cartridge box and says, well, this is the only core badge we need. So that then designates it as the badge of the 15th Corps. Now, right, the so, uh, okay. 14th Corps is based off the Battle of uh, Chattanooga, where the Union troops there were really besieged and surrounded. Uh, they ran so short of supplies that the soldiers took to eating acorns. Um, and they actually dubbed them themselves the Acorn Boys every day after that. So the, what you see is uh, an ex- a real experience of you know real survival that causes them to co- keep that badge. And it's one of the few badges that has like more examples of like coming out of every material possible. Like you see them made out of lead. You see them made out of met- other metals, precious metals. You see them engraved. You see them more 3D. You see them 2D cloth as well of course so there was another real sense of pride because it was from a situation that they made it through right and we talked about this a little bit earlier and and you just mentioned all the materials they used to produce these different badges and so some of these badges were definitely government issued but a lot of other guys went out and went to sutlers or ordered them right well, sutlers um, is a term that gets a little confusing because of the way the reenacting hobby is organized. So sutlers okay. nowadays are looked at as the guys who sell our equipment, gear, accoutrements, whatever you want to call them. But sutlers back then typically were assigned to maybe one regiment, and they were supposed to just follow them around as long as they could keep supply up. Um, okay. But, but back then, um, well, at least in my research, I found that uh, – you had a lot of mail order stuff because the federal mail was still running, you know, generally smoothly. There was no interruptions like, you know, Southern mail. Um, but so you, so a lot of the newspaper ads you find and in like Harper's Weekly or various other periodicals say that the, this jeweler in New York city um, is looking for agents. So they have civilians go out to meet the army if they're permitted to, you know, interact uh, to you know, sell their wares, but they also look for agents within the armies, and the, the ads specifically say that. So the idea is that there were soldiers kind of uh, working a, you could say, a second job while they're out there in the field, distributing you know pamphlets or whatever to their fellows to get these badges. And you see this more with officers because they could afford to pay for more elaborate badges, uh, because the army actually didn't regulated so much that um, they, they said, okay, no, you can't do that. They more or less said, all right, well, as long as it represents what it needs to represent, it could be out of whatever material, it could be as intricate or ornate or as plain as you like it to be. So that's why you see cloth badges sometimes being you know, just plain cutout shapes or having intricate sewing on them. Um, sometimes you see them made out of gold bullion around the badges. Um, but then with the metal badges, there's almost like an endless number of unique differences to them. They could be gold. They could be silver. Um, though I recently learned that the U.S. did not have a large supply of silver on hand during the war. So you usually saw them out of gold. But another trick that jewelers would do is they would take the few silver coins that were out there. So say you take a 25-cent piece. They look at it as right. a business, you know. Uh, in a business perspective, take a 25-cent piece, rub it smooth so that there's no sign of the minting, and then put whatever design you want on it to represent a core and sell it for a dollar. So you just made 75 cents. Uh, yeah. So, so to, to They're creative. The question, they, they, know how to, they were business people, for sure. Exactly, exactly. So there were 
plenty of ways for these for federal soldiers to get their badges if the government didn't provide them directly. But just like so another example you'd see is they didn't they permitted soldiers, even enlisted men particularly, if they had the money, they could purchase any weapon they wanted and carry it in the field as their primary weapon. So that's why in the later years of the war, you see men with repeating rifles of various kinds or, or more um, like breech loading rifles just because the standard musket they found to be not as um, useful. So maybe if they saved their money or found the means, they, they opted for another weapon because they were permitted to do so. So same thing with the badges. They really were not restricted on what they could wear so long as it served its proper purpose. And most of these badges, they've come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, multiple designs, as you stated. Um, but were they only for core badges, or did other uh, other organizations have them, companies, regiments? Well, the, the way it seems to evolve through the years of the war is uh, the beginning of the war, like I said earlier, they had everybody had a different type of uniform. Rarely did you see one guy looking completely like the other, depending on their regiment. So once that started, that kind of was weaned off as the, maybe the, by the second, third year. Uh, you still saw like, you know, Zouaves still proudly wore their uniform really throughout the war. Um, some other regiments had certain headgears, certain, you know, trim or, or things on their uniforms. Um, but so you had like, like they call it hat brass. So the commander of a regiment would designate what that uniform really needed to consist of. So. A lot of them wore cer certain hat ornaments to insignia, rather, to designate who they were before you have the core badges. So examples would be uh, branch insignia, bugles for the infantry based off the European model, uh, cross sabers for the cavalry, cross cannons for artillery. Then there were company letters, which would range through the, you know, basically A through uh, L, I believe, were the typical letters. Um, also numbers to represent the regiments. But in some cases, like there was, I forget the actual unit. I think it's the second Massachusetts. Uh, I know it was a Massachusetts regiment, but they consisted of men all the way from California who came all the way back to the east to fight in the war. But they wore the word California all the way around the bottom of their the flat top of their caps. Oh. So it, maybe not to the full extent of everybody, but several of them. There are, is, I've seen the, the uh, period photos. So that's just another version of something to designate who they are, you know, exactly where they're from and who they're with. So um, you do see uh, sometimes like very unique badges, um, depending on the regiment. I'm trying to think of a good example. Probably. Uh, well, I, there's one that I did for a uh, reenactment group, uh, the 8th Ohio. Uh, they had, were part of the second corps, which was a trefoil, or rather a, a three-leaf clover. And that was probably one of the most popular badge that I provide uh, through the, the second corps. But their badge was a custom-made one that had the number eight and the initials OVI in it in little uh, diamond shapes that that's spaced the numbers and the letters. So very unique, obviously privately purchased, privately made, but worn historically by that regiment. So a whole group could go in for badges. Individual soldiers could get them. Um, but again, it, oh, there's, there's, there, there really is a lot of variety. And once you have the war end and the veterans groups come up, you see decorations of every kind come out. So, you know, the idea of a soldier covered in medals is 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 really that's where it starts so it's kind of it's kind of you know difference between metal badge insignia it's, it, it gets a very skewed sometimes because almost all of it is worn in pride throughout this war and so it's a lot of these guys they all had, wanted to be part of something bigger than themselves so a sense of identity but also individualism you know showing that they're from california uh, and showing their uh, patriotism all the way from California is definitely something interesting too. I mean, you, it, it, there's a uh, there's an academic argument out there um, that you know, particularly like with a battle, 
one perspective is not going to tell you everything that happened in that battle. Just like one perspective is not going to tell you everything that happened in, in a whole war. So, right. for example, with this, you've got, got, you know, elements moving and thinking and operating in different areas of the country all at the same time. So there are um, groups that come up with this idea on their own that, that evolve separately, like uh, West Virginia is a very good example. Because you know, West Virginia, very underlooked and under-taught, I think, uh, area of the war, and very unique. Because you know, it's a part of one state that's part of a state that seceded from another in order to stay in the Union. Um, it, it, it really contributed a large number of significant troops to the Union cause, but also um, kind of operated independently, more or less, where they actually first developed the system of brigades where they had various brigades that all wore five-pointed stars as well, similar to the 20th and 12th Corps that I mentioned earlier. But they were doing this on their own without any connection to the Army of the Potomac, because they weren't part of the Army of the Potomac. So later that evolves into a uh, six-pointed star, like the Star of David, that forms into the 8th Corps, but it's kind of short-lived, and they then consolidated into other parts of the armies to where they then developed one corps just for the whole state of West Virginia, once it gained statehood, called the West Virginia Corps, which adopts a, a bald eagle as their corps badge. So that's just one area of the war, more, you know, small compared to the whole, you know, East-West theater idea that developed their own insignia and adopted various versions just for their own usage. Just obviously at this point, the Army of the Potomac still had was operating with them and they proved effective and it was spreading throughout all the armies anyway. But just to give you a more unique example. It, it is. It's it's really neat to see like how wide range all these badges are. You know, like you're talking about how you, you find different examples everywhere. I'm, I'm sure the research is, is endless for you. You must scour a lot of photographs through Library of Congress, right? Or... Well, everywhere I can. Honestly, it's it's uh, you know, federal resources, public resources, um, private resources. I go through a lot of like auction sites to see you know maybe you know private collections are suddenly up for auctions because that's that's really where a lot of these are hoarded. Because yeah, you know, Civil War has been popular really since their centennial, the centennial in the 60s, I think, maybe even before that, to where. Um, I know that there are several people out there that have collections, but they, they covet them. They don't share what they have. Um, and uh, maybe with a few people, but, you know, unless you're in the community, you don't really hear about it. But, you know, every once in a while, uh, like uh, just on eBay, you could I, I can't tell you what kind of education I've learned just by looking at images on eBay. Um, what's fake, particularly um, what uh, is and what is real um, and what. Um, you know, how unique they really can be. Um, one example I'll give you actually is not even from them. It's from uh, somebody messaged me via Facebook after somebody posted a badge they had bought at an estate sale and found in a box. I think it was in Tennessee. And they said, uh, could anyone tell me what this is? And somebody said, well, ask the badge maker. And so they asked me and it was um, a second core badge shape that was filled with some sort of blue enameling in certain areas to you know, be really elaborate and, and nice uh, visually. And it had all the other smaller badges insignia of the Army of the Potomac, so all seven within it. So you have one big badge, that's the clover, then all seven smaller images in it, and each one filled blue. So very unique, I've ne never seen oh, wow. one before. Um, clearly a post-war badge because you wouldn't have seen that during the war because it wouldn't designate completely who you were unless, you know, it meant just for the Second Corps, but to show all the others would have been unnecessary. But still, just a very rare, unique piece that clearly was made privately for the sake of commemorating somebody's service. Something that they, they made for themselves and had up in their office somewhere, you know, that, and then uh, end up in someone's attic. Wow. Yeah, very. I mean, that's yeah. Just just happened to get lost in the shuffle of of you know time, and you know uh, ownership. You know who knows really who. But nobody know. It, there was nothing on it that showed who it belonged to. Um, there was really no way to narrow it down other than just being part of the Second Corps. 
Um, I don't believe there there were no regiments from Tennessee in uh, in the Army of the, of the Potomac, so it must have just found its way there through people purchasing it or passing it down or something. But you know that's and that's one of the wonders of the uh, internet these days, at least in my view of my uh, business, where I get to you know this is a great way to communicate with people and see what else is out there that otherwise we would never meet or be able to speak. So. I'm always thankful for whatever people were willing to share what I find and hope to uh, help share with other people and educate on. Is there is there any other badge that you saw that really you never seen anything quite like it before? Like that was this the one that you were like, wow, this is totally different. I mean, that, that uh, honestly, I can't say it is. I could say it's one of them, but like something like that comes along maybe like every few weeks. Uh, there's always oh, wow. something new I'm finding. There's always something new that's coming out there. Um, like there were, there was one I recently saw on eBay that was, for, I think they're asking like $5,000 for it, but it's kind of a multi-piece badge where it looks like it's various pieces of metal layered on each other and then suspended by two small chains onto a top bar that, that would consist of the pin to wear it. Um, I believe it's a... Maltese cross, I think, with um, it's got like a, a number and letters to mark the regiment and what state it was in. And a, I think there's a wreath around it as well, like a laurel wreath. Um, but everything's a different color. So the base is like silver. The wreath is gold. The numbers are like more maybe a, a whiter metal. Um, so it's, it's really beautiful, really intricately made, clearly made privately by a jeweler um, with a lot of experience and care. Um, but yeah, I'd never seen something like that before, but that's the veterans badges get more and more elaborate because they really, that's where they took the most pride from them because, you know, they made it and, and it was such an experience and it lasts, you know, that kind of sensitivity, I guess, but also just, um, consciousness of the experience of the war last, you know, lasted well into the 20th century. So you still see them even then coming out with badges just for veterans to wear. And I'm sure that there's probably you, you probably see badges for every different reunion that comes out. They probably came out with something different. Yeah, they, they came out with a souvenir badge for every single reunion they had, I think. And they're they're endless. And some people just collect those. Um, I've wow. seen enough of them where, you know, you I mean, it's nice because you can there's plenty of documentation to show that, yes, they. They held a reunion, you know, here at this time, you know, and then you just find out, okay, what was the badge they they all got because they participated or attended? Um, not all of them maybe did that, maybe not in the initial years. I think that became more the norm. I'm not sure the earliest year I've seen one, maybe late 1860s, 1870s. But yeah, there's ton, tons of them, and they're so so intricately made, like. I know there's one for, I think it's California, that's got like a beaver as the top bar. Um, oh, I wow. Think, I think I, there's one where there's a, a piece of hardtack hanging from the ribbon. Um, there's one I've been, been following lately that's an actual like knapsack, like a army knapsack with a blanket roll in it and everything um, made out of metal, worn, you know, worn as a pin. And that's you know another nice one. So, yeah, there's that. I don't know if we'll ever know all of the ones that they really had, but uh, it's kind of like a nice continuation. You know, you go from the core badges to these elaborate uh, veterans badges or souvenir badges, and some of them even consist of the core badge. Um, but lately, I'll even point out that I've been finding now medals issued by communities to soldiers from those communities. And they're very beautiful, very intricate, very personal pieces. Like they even have um, text uh, dyed into them and, and maybe stamping to be custom. Um, West Virginia is another example of this. They, they're even still issuing medals to ancestors of descendants, rather, of Civil War veterans who served the state of West Virginia in the war and maybe didn't get a medal or it was lost or something. So they're still giving those out. But I've been, I found one from uh, several counties, uh, my home state of New Jersey, that issued me medals of thanks for service to, to New Jersey veterans who are from those communities. Um, there's a great one 
issued by the city of Brooklyn, one for army service and one for Navy service. And they're these nice looking medals suspended from, I believe, a burgundy ribbon. Um, I wish I could get my hands on one, but it really would. I'm, I'm not big on collecting myself, actually. I, I have a very scarce uh, originals collection, but if anybody wanted one, I'd be happy to reproduce it. However, my means could provide it. Um, but it's just another unique example of what kind of, you know, mindset the United States had and its people had after the war. And that's neat because, from my understanding, officially, uh, the U.S. military only had the Medal of Honor at that time. Right. And so to hear that, you know, communities started to go out of their way to recognize uh, uh, their soldiers, um, since there was such a limited way of, of recognizing them through military protocol. Right. They, uh, that's where the Medal of Honor is created and first worn and, and, and issued. Uh, you don't see medals really at all before that because uh, I found that uh, the United States at the time, at least the military, did not look at decorations, as they called them, as American. They looked at it as too European. And uh, so if you look, like, say, at Napoleonic Wars, you see Napoleon himself and lots of French uh, soldiers wearing medals. Um, you know, the, the British definitely uh, by that point and after. But the United States was slow to get on that because they didn't believe in that type of uh, idea. But then once they experienced the Civil War and, you know, the brutality of it and the you know personal touch, I guess, that it really affected everybody, then it was seen. Yes, we need to recognize military service for this. And so... As we were saying before, you've reproduced these core badges. You, you can't. You said it's within your means to reproduce some of these medals, right? Um, but also, you re- reproduce uh, Civil War ID tags, correct? Yes, yes, I do. From what I've been able to find, I guess we could thank Ken Burns for this. But I was able to find a quote here from uh, Lieutenant Cor- Colonel Horace Porter. Uh, in the book Campaigning with Grant, said, Passing along on foot among the troops at the extreme front that evening while transmitting some of the final orders, I I observed an incident which afforded a practical illustration of the deliberate and desperate courage of the men. As I came near one of the regiments which was making preparations for the next morning's assault, I noticed that many of the soldiers had taken taken off their coats and seemed to be engaged in sewing up rents in them. This exhibition of tailoring seemed rather peculiar at such a moment, but upon closer examination, it was found that the men were calmly writing their names and home addresses on slips of paper and pinning them to the backs of their coats so that their dead bodies might be recognized upon the field and their fate be known to their families. Um, So I know that story has been told on and on and on, but in actuality, I, uh, you were saying that this is not, this wasn't totally commonplace. That actually, you know, pinning paper to your, the back of your coat uh, might be, might help you, in, you know, in a last ditch effort. But you, if you were really serious about it, you want an ID tag. Uh, an ID tag would survive the uh, weather and uh, last you longer. And that's what soldiers did. They went off and bought these ID tags. Yes. Um, so, yeah, the, when I was younger and learning about the war and all its intricacies, I learned that story, too. OK, took it for granted many years and realized, OK, that's what they did. Just said, OK, that somebody smart is telling me that I might as well believe it. But then once I started this my business and in, in providing, in addition to the badges, uh, ID discs, being that they're not something you see. Um, for the hobby or historical interpretation in, in a great, really at all, though some people carry them to uh, just carry them, but they don't offer anything in the way of stamping them with information. I found that there's really a lot of examples and there's a lot of images of soldiers wearing them. I'm like, oh, okay, this is, this is new, this is interesting. So then I started thinking just practicality-wise, well, what, how long is that piece of paper going to really last? Because um, especially during Grant's campaigns, I mean, the, the 
the conditions and what, you know, he was just assaulting all the time. Soldiers always on offense, you know, and this is when trench warfare was getting more the norm. So you're really in dirty, grimy, wet conditions all the time. And I could speak from my reenacting experience, not that I say it's the exact same at all from what real soldiers at the time experienced, but enough so where I believe I have a best, a really good understanding of it. Uh, you are sweating. You are, oh, you know, you're carrying, you know, you're th- carrying something on your back or you're laying on the ground or somebody's falling over you or in a more realistic sense, somebody gets injured and there's blood or there's, you know, dirt flying everywhere. Well, yeah, maybe there's a few guys whose those pieces of paper did make it. And if they were killed, maybe they did help identify them. But just just think a piece of paper versus a piece of metal. I mean, they're still finding ID discs that were dropped or lost or thrown away or just or for whatever reason, uh, not, you know, with their owner to where they're still surviving today. So the idea that they would have survived, you know, uh, you know, one day's battle. Yeah, very likely. And just in the number of images I've seen of, of soldiers and also just of discs that have survived to today and are made, you know, stamped. Um, there, there's an endless amount, really. I mean, there's no way of determining exactly how many did wear them, but it's slowly adding up. So for me, it's, I'm convinced that it was more of a norm than the idea of writing on paper. Well, I, I think one of my favorite, I guess you could say, stories of a Union ID tag being found was the Union ID tag found inside the Hunley. Oh, yes. yes. I don't know if you heard about that. No, go ahead. Um, it's a good example. So from from what I understand, they found the, the Union identification tag discovered in, inside the Confederate submarine, and it bared the name Ezra Chamberlain, I believe, of the 7th Connecticut Infantry. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently when this came out, there was a whole uproar, and people were wondering, you know, was there a a union spy on the, on the Hunley? Is this a was there a mission of espionage here? Um, but from what I understand, they found out that the ID tag was on the person of Joseph Ridgeway of Maryland, mm-hmm. and both men had fought on opposite sides during the battle on Morris Island, 1863, and records indicate that's where Chamberlain died. And okay. this, this tag could have been a battlefield souvenir uh, for Ridgeway. That is that is a great example. That's a great story. Um, I'll, I'll counter that story to give it a, a supporting example. Uh, it's not I related to an ID tag, but um, I, will, I used to work at uh, Appomattox Courthouse National Park in my college days. And I had to research a lot for talking to visitors there. And there's an, a written account of a, um, if I remember specifically, I want to say it was a Union soldier uh, through the close combat that occurred in the village itself. Uh, I believe he shot a Confederate soldier. Okay. Soldier goes down. That soldier, Union soldier then walks up to the body and decides to cut off uh, the top part of the uh, uniform where the button first, you know, buttons are, and walks away, takes it as a souvenir. Very strange souvenir. Could have really taken anything. But the only reason that we know that that story is true, and if I'm remembering the details correctly, it might have been reversed. It might have been Confederate to Union or something like that. But the idea is, some one soldier killed another, thought he killed another soldier, then decided to rip off a piece of his uniform as a souvenir. So with that, uh, the only reason we know that's real is because the soldier wasn't dead that he took it from. He oh, wow. Was, he was basically playing dead, or at least was in shock of being shot and realized that he was alive enough to see this other soldier realize what he was doing. So he then regained his, his composure and survived his wound and made it out through the battle and obviously the end of the war. So there is a written account of that there. So... So, yeah, there are, there's a strange uh, concept of war trophies during the war. And that's, there's actually another academic argument out there about American, American soldiers being the ones that take war trophies. Like, you know, 
connecting it maybe to Native American practice or something. But um, yeah, during the, the so that you have a great example with uh, the potential on the soldier on the Hunley and specifically an ID disc. Um, you think you know more humanely? Yeah, leave it alone. Leave it on that poor guy's body. But uh, right. But still, yeah. So yeah, they they took various things for whatever reason, or maybe even traded them. Who knows? Because there was yeah. a like that in between the lines that was more uh, friendly. So, and and that and that's an iron, irony because the Confederate troops never really adopted ID discs. So if he if he knew of this one, if this other this Confederate soldier did take it from a Union soldier, maybe it was due to the oddity of it. It's like, oh, what's this? Why do they have this? You know, who knows? Right, right. And and you could say that maybe he was planning to send it back to the family. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, maybe he thought, okay, who knows? Maybe he, maybe it's a similar thing. Maybe he killed that soldier from Connecticut. Maybe he felt right. remorse. I don't. Who knows? We will never know. But, uh, but yeah, somehow he picked it up. But the but just to say, you know, they they obviously they were worn, and they served their purpose. Because well, you know what? If that Confederate picked up that disc, well, he knew who that soldier was. So anyone else right. wearing one, anyone else, you know, unfortunately killed wearing one, it would mark who they were. And the ID discs themselves, they came in different forms, just as many different forms as the badges, right? They had uh, – Yes. I think you mentioned that they put – some of them had uh, prominent generals on them. Yes, so the the idea of them um, is strictly military, military or patriotic, really. Uh, most of them say something like War of 1861 on them or against rebellion or they have elaborate military, you know, symbolism on it, like weapons or something. Um, but they are, you know, bald eagles. Uh, but yes, also generals. So General McClellan being as popular as he was amongst soldiers, you know, somebody out there got the idea. Well, I can make a buck off his image and put him on a disc and was selling it. Very common when you see surviving these days. Um, also, uh, General Hooker, I know, is on there. And I know General Grant uh, would have been later. Uh, but I, I want to say maybe there, there's a few other generals, not as prominent as those names, but but did, you know, somebody recognize them as being, you know, possible that, you know, I can make a buck off these guys, too. So, yeah, you do see the images, silhouettes, um, nice artwork of actual re really good uh, representations of those generals. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, there's, there, that's one I do provide just because, it, you know, there was a lot of pride in him being the president, of course, at the time. So, yeah, you see, it's almost as unique as the wearer. You know, there's just so many. And, and the jewelers and the people selling them, they just came up with anything they thought, obviously, to make money, but also look appealing. Because it wasn't just that they identify the body. It was that they'd wear them, and it's kind of like a show-off thing. Uh, that's why right, one a piece of, of jewelry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's one of them that is meant for, uh, I think it says – something to the tone of fought in these battles and then they're supposed to stamp the the names of the battles they fought in oh wow that's that's pretty neat um but then that's you know that's neat. that's kind of you know again to show that yeah this is not just to say who this was this is also to say what they did and what they contributed to but then you see some that are more really more eye-opening uh the one i always talk about when i can is one that says stamped on it uh, under the soldier's information return to my mother so clearly that had a purpose of right. what it you know, initially was set out to do is identify and if need be, see that that soldier's remains were returned to the right place. And uh, just a shift from the, you know, <laughs> more sad idea of that, I do get, you know, custom work a lot of times and somebody did actually commission me to make uh, Confederate ID discs on the back of brothel tokens. So to return their bodies to the brothels, they enjoy. Oh, <laughs> so cre creativity. Yeah. I, I like that. As we were saying before, I know you mentioned some of the, um, uh, Don Troiani's book, right? Uh, some of the different books, but where else could you, uh, what, what other sources do you recommend, uh, for people who, who would be interested in learning more about these badges and ID tags? So the there's several uh, Don 
Troyani's book is great for visual examples um, because they come out of either his collection or other collections that people have. And like I said, that's where a lot of them now reside. Um, but because of the, his connections in the book, uh, they, they really show some nice, beautiful pieces in there. So that's a great visual example. Um, for general information, uh, Hardtack and Coffee, uh, you know, the reenactors. Uh, reenactors yeah, Bible, right? Bible, you know. <laughs> How-to guide in many ways um, is a, is really the first reference I'd recommend anybody to look at if they want to learn about them, just because that's that's straight from a soldier's recollection. So that's a great one. If you want any info on ID discs, there's really only one collected book out there, um, and that would be um, identification discs of Union soldiers in the Civil War. Long title, but it, it has visual pieces that you could see and notice all the different kinds. It's got examples of ones that you pin to your pin that were pinned to the chest or worn around the neck or featured this person or that design or were stamped this way. So it's a really good collective work. Unfortunately for badges, though, um, besides the ones I've mentioned, uh, like well, both of those books are not specific to badges. Those are just chapters of those books focused on badges. As far as I know, there is no book on the badges themselves because it's really impossible to compile. Um, through my communications with people in the historical community, I did find out that there are some scholars out there trying to do so, but I believe they've been at it for maybe like 10 years or more. Wow. You know, that might be an overestimate, but that's what I was told. So just because probably there's no way of tallying the number of kinds there are. Um, you could generalize, and uh, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I can't deny I've thought of tackling it myself if I ever get the time. But um, I'm hoping that with my uh, social media, whenever I find a original piece you know out there i take a picture of it and post it and share whatever information i can about it so that you know maybe someday it could be used to compile something that educates completely on it um but i'll be i'll be truthful there is only really one work that compiles core badges now that's um what i call my core badge bible uh that's civil war core badges um and other related awards badges and medals of the period by stanley s phillips um, it was a self-published book, uh, I believe, in the 80s, and there's not many copies out there. It goes for like, I think, $250 is the normal price for it uh, because it's so rare. But it is a great collection of, of, what, of the badges that existed, uh, at least for the time that he wrote it. Um, honestly, I've added a little bit to it since, but it's still, you know, only in the manner that I can. And is there a place where people can go or a location where people can go to see these core badges? Honestly, any museum would, uh, related to the Civil War would be good. Um, I mean, I'd recommend, um, let's see, definitely, um, I mean, Gettysburg, of course, any museum you walk into or any, uh, what's the term I want to use? Um any store that sells, you know, Civil War artifacts probably has them. Um, but I know the museum at Gettysburg has great examples of them. But also um, there is the Medal of Honor Heritage Museum in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, I know they have some good examples there in their collections. Um, I actually sent the, they purchased some reproductions for me for uh, a exhibit on a sergeant from the 149th New York who won a Medal of Honor for his actions at Lookout Mountain. Um, they they have examples there, but really, you know, any museum focused on the Civil War should have them. And if they don't, well, somebody should say something because they they should be on display. Uh, right. But it depends on the battles or whatever you know that that took place. Because if you're looking at, you know, First Manassas Museum at the National Park there, well, they're not going to have any because even at the Battle of Second Manassas, there were no core badges worn. So you right. want to you know, go through the history and look at, okay, were they wearing badges? Were they not wearing badges? And then you might find them in the collections of the museum. But I'll, I'll be honest, any museum is not always going to have everything out on display either. So they might even have them, but not have them in an exhibit. But, uh, but I know they're out there. 
and you know thank god for collectors because you know that stuff gets passed around and advertised when it gets sold so then it's more and more get revealed so if anybody was interested in researching badges definitely the books that i recommended but also just you know just travel america travel the south travel where events of the civil war took place and you're bound to find something and uh, how can people get in touch with you and uh, see more of your work? So I have uh, uh, my social media platforms. I have my Facebook page, uh, The Badge Maker LLC. Same thing for my Instagram, just dots in between the words. And uh, I try to post anything that I make for people and anything I find that's original out there. And, um, of course, my website, CivilWarCoreBadges.com. Fantastic. Fantastic. We're reaching about that time now. So uh, just before I close out, uh, I usually like to close out by, uh, in the beginning of my episode, how I tied in what we can see today. I usually tie it up back in the back in the end as well. So you mentioned the 15th core, uh, 40 rounds. Yes. And I think it would be interesting for people to know that that tradition is still carried on today by the 13th Infantry Regiment, who continue to have the 40 rounds image in their distinctive unit insignia. And that is worn by uh, the drill sergeants who are in that regiment at uh, Fort Jackson today. So that's kind of neat. Mm -hmm. uh, that history from uh, the Civil War has a direct uh, connection to us today. Uh, and, and even more so, that has direct connection to uh, the soldiers serving today. So thank you very much for uh, coming on and, and doing this interview. It means a lot to have you here. Uh, appreciate it so much. Oh, same here. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, have a good night and uh, try to stay uh, try to stay warm in this winter. Same to you. Take care. Pleasure again. Bye for now. This brings us to the end of this episode of the Untold Civil War podcast. Hope we kept you entertained during your commute to work, while doing the dishes, walking the dog, or whenever you listen to podcasts. I'd like to say a quick thank you to Craig Duncan for allowing me to use his music on this podcast. For more on him, please go to his website, www.craigduncan.net. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast and haven't already, please follow the Untold Civil War podcast Instagram page. On there, you'll get all sorts of updates, behind-the-scenes info, and images that pertain to every individual episode. So bye for now, and hope to have you tune in next month for our next episode.